Section 4 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by D. Randall. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Sautner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 2, Part 2. It was a time of excitement. The war has broken out. People forget that it is really two masses of men who are rushing to fight each other and conceive of the event as if it was some exalted overruling third power whose outbreak compels these two masses into the fight. The whole responsibility falls on this power, lying beyond the wills of individuals and which on its side merely produces the fulfillment of the destined fate of the nations. Such is the dark and awful conception which the majority of mankind have of war, and which was mine too. There was no question of my feeling any revolt against making war in general. What I suffered from was only that my beloved husband had to go out into the danger, and I too stayed behind in anxiety and solitude. I rummaged up all my old impressions from the days of my historical studies in order to strengthen and inspire me with the conviction that it was the highest of human duties which called my dear one away, and that thereby the possibility was offered to him of covering himself with glory and honor. Now, at any rate, I was living in the midst of an epoch of history, and this again was a peculiarly elevating thought. Since from Herodotus and Tacitus down to the historians of modern times, wars have always been represented as the events of most importance and of weightiest consequence, I concluded that at the present time also a war of this sort would pass with future historians as an event to serve for the title of a chapter. This elevated tone, overpowering in its impressiveness, was that which prevailed everywhere else. Nothing else was spoken of in rooms or streets, nothing else read in the newspapers, nothing else prayed about in the churches. Wherever one went, one found everywhere the same excited faces, the same eager talk about the possibilities of the war. Everything else which engaged the people's interests at other times, the theater, business, art, was now looked on as perfectly insignificant. It seemed to one as if it were not right to think of anything else whilst the opening scene in this great drama of the destiny of the world was being played out and the different orders to the army with the well-known phrases of the certainty of victory and promise of glory, and the troops marching out with clanging music and waving banners, and the leading articles and public speeches conceived in the most glowing tone of loyalty and patriotism, the eternal appeal to virtue, honor, duty, courage, self-sacrifice, the assurances made on both sides that their nation was known to be the most invincible most courageous, most certainly destined to a higher extension of power, the best and the noblest. All this spread around an atmosphere of heroism, which filled the whole population with pride and called out in each individual the belief that he was a great citizen in a great state. Such bad qualities, however, as these, lust of conquest, love of fighting, hatred, cruelty, guile were also certainly to be found and were admitted to be shown in war, but always by the enemy. To him, his being in the wrong was quite clear. 
Quite apart from the political necessity of the campaign just commenced, apart also from the patriotic advantages which undoubtedly grew out of it, the conquest over one's adversary was a moral work, a discipline carried out by the genius of culture. These Italians, what a foul, false, sensual, light-minded, conceited people. And this Louis Napoleon, what a mixture of ambition and the spirit of intrigue. When his proclamation of war, published on April 29, appeared with its motto, Italy free to the Adriatic Sea, it called out amongst us a storm of indignation. I did allow myself a feeble remark that this was at least an unselfish and noble idea, which must have an inspiriting influence on Italian patriots, but I was soon put to silence. The dogma that Louis Napoleon is a scoundrel was not to be shaken as long as he was the enemy. Everything proceeding from him was abinitio gaudrelli. Another slight doubt arose in me. In all the battle stories of history, I had found that the sympathy and admiration of the relators were always expressed for the party who wanted to free themselves from a foreign yoke and who fought for freedom. It is true that I was not capable of giving any distinct idea of the meaning of the word yoke or of that of freedom, though so abundantly sung about. But one thing seemed to me perfectly clear, viz., that the shaking off of the yoke and the struggle for freedom lay this time on the side not of Austria, but of Italy. But even for these scruples, timidly conceived as they were, and still more timidly expressed, I was thundered down. For here I was so unlucky as again to trench on a sacred principle, namely that our government, i.e., the government under which one happened to have been born, could never result in a yoke, but only in a blessing, that any who wished to tear themselves loose from us could not be warriors of freedom, but only simple rebels, and that generally and in all circumstances we were always and everywhere wholly in the right. In the early days of May, they were luckily cold and rainy days. Sunny spring weather would have made too painful a contrast the regiment into which Arnold had exchanged March. At seven in the morning, ah, the preceding night, what a terrible night it was, if the dear one had only been going on a journey of business free from any danger, the parting would have made me unspeakably sorrowful. Parting is indeed so sad. But to the war, to meet the fiery shower of the enemy's bullets, why could I no longer on that night apprehend at all in that word war its elevated historical signification, but only its terror and threatening of death? Arnold had fallen asleep. He lay there breathing quietly with a cheerful expression on his features. I had lighted a fresh candle and put it behind a screen. I could not be in the dark that night. Of sleep there was no question, whatever for me in that, the last night. I felt that I must spend the whole time in gazing at least into the beloved face. I lay on our bed wrapped in a dressing gown, and with my elbow on the pillow and my chin resting on the palm of my hand, looked down on the sleeper and wept silently. How I love you! How I love you, my own one! And you are going away from me. Why is fate so cruel? How shall I live without you? Oh, that you may soon come back to me. Oh, God, my good God, my merciful Father above, 
Let him come back soon, him and all. Let there soon be peace. Why then cannot there be peace always? We were so happy, perhaps too happy, for there cannot be any perfect happiness on earth. Oh, rapture, if he comes home unhurt and then lies at my side as he is doing now, and no parting threatened for the morrow, how quietly you are sleeping, oh, my dear, brave husband. But how shall you sleep there? There, there is no soft bed for you, hung with silk and lace. There you must lie on the hard wet earth, perhaps in some ditch, helpless, wounded. And with this thought, I could not help picturing a gaping saber cut on his forehead, with the blood trickling from it, or a bullet wound in his breast, and a hot pang of compassion seized me. How I should have liked to throw my arms round him and kiss him, but I dared not wake him. He wanted this invigorating sleep. Not six o'clock yet? Tick-tack, tick-tack. Unpittingly swift and sure time marches on to every mark. This indifferent tick-tack distressed me. The light, too, burned just as indifferently behind its screen as this clock ticked with its silly, motionless cupid. Can it be that all these things have no perception, that it is our last night? My tearful lids fell together, my consciousness gradually went away, and letting my head sink on the pillow, I fell asleep at last myself, but only for a short time. Hardly had I lost my sense in the fog of some formless dream when my heart suddenly contracted painfully and I awoke with a violent palpitation and the same feeling of fear as when one is awakened by a cry for help or an alarm of fire. Parting, parting, was the alarm cry. When I had started so out of sleep for the tenth or twelfth time, it was day, and the candle was flickering out. A knock came at the door. Six o'clock, Lieutenant, said the orderly, who had been ordered to wake him in good time. Arno rose up. So now the hour was come. Now was to be spoken this sad, sad word, farewell. It had been settled that I was not to go to the railway with him. The one quarter of an hour more or less together, that was not worth much. And the pain of tearing ourselves asunder at last, that I did not wish to show to strangers. I wanted to be alone in my room when we exchanged the parting kiss, that I might be able to throw myself on the floor and shriek, shriek out loud. Arnold put on his clothes quickly. As he was doing so, he made me all kinds of comforting speeches. Courage, Martha. In two months, at the most, the affair will be over, and I shall be back again at cuckoo time. Only one in a thousand bullets hits, and that one must not hit me. Others before me have come back from the wars. Look at your papa. It must happen some time or other. You did not marry an officer of hussars with the notion that his business was to grow high incense. I will write to you as often as possible and tell you how pleasantly and livelily the whole campaign is going on. If anything bad were destined for me, I could not feel so cheerful. I am going only to win an order, nothing else. Take great care here of yourself and our Ruru, and if I get promotion, he shall have another step too. Kiss him for me. I will not repeat the parting of last night. The time will come when it will be a treat for him to have his father tell him how in the year 59 
he was present at the great victory over Italy. I listened to him greedily. This confident chatter did me good. He was going away all pleased and in good spirits, and so my suffering must be egotistic and therefore wrong. This thought ought to give me strength to conquer it. Another knock at the door. Time now, Lieutenant. I am quite ready. Coming directly, he spread out his arms. Now then, Martha, my wife, my love. I lay at once on his breast. I could not speak a word. The word farewell would not pass my lips. I felt that in saying that word I should give way, and I did not dare to poison the peace, the cheerfulness of his departure. I reserved the outbreak of my pain as a kind of reward for my solitude. But now he spoke the heartbreaking word. Goodbye, my all. Goodbye. And pressed his lips closely to mine. We could not tear ourselves out of this embrace as though it were our last. Then, on a sudden, I felt how his lips were trembling, how convulsively his bosom heaved, and then releasing me, he covered his face and sobbed aloud. That was too much for me. I thought I was going out of my mind. Arno, Arno, I cried out, throwing my arms round him. Stay, stay. I knew I was asking what was impossible. Still, I cried out persistently. Stay, stay. Lieutenant, we heard from outside. It is now quite time. One more kiss, the last of all. And he rushed out. End of section four.